Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? My name is Michal Oshman, and I'm your host. I'm thrilled to introduce a songwriter and singer that describes himself as writing music for the soul, but that has been described by the BBC as the singer who chose his faith over an Adele tour. Alex Clare. And just to be honest, I do know Alex from before. I've known you for a while and you're the only guest that I've known before because I just had to have you on the show. And I know you released a new single and I know you're all over with concerts and I've seen coverage of you of BBC and different media outlets. So I am grateful, Alex, that you are finding time for our conversation today. So a few facts about Alex. Alex is a hugely talented songwriter and singer. Alex was offered to tour with Adele, the amazing Adele, uh, to go with her on tour, world tour, and to probably get very easily famous by doing that. But Alex, you said no. You said no to Adele. Why did you say no? We will find out today. Shalom, Alex. How are you today? Shalom, Michal. Thank God. Really good. Bit of a cold, you know, dealing with the winter, winter blues. But uh, otherwise, yeah, pretty good. Alex, this is a very uh, special moment for me today, hosting you on What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? Because I met you, I want to say maybe seven, eight years Probably ago. Probably something like that. Something like that. And uh, I met you in a house at a family that uh, means a lot to me, which is your wife's family and now your family. And it's where I started learning Jewish wisdom uh, Hasidut and Tanya. So the living room where we sat together and, and had a meal, that place was holy for me. It was a very special for place. Sure. And it's very, it's a very special holy place for me too. I'm a big fan of my in-laws. <laughs> I met my wife in that house also. So Alex, I think I was thinking about how to introduce you, but the list is so long. So I was thinking of asking you to introduce yourself, but in a s- specific way, okay. I was wondering if you can tell us, Alex Clare, who and where you are today who and where you were maybe seven years ago, and who and where were you 14 years ago? Ooh. Uh. <laughs> Here's the root cause of my split personality. Um, <laughs> here we go. So right now I am living in Jerusalem, Israel. I'm a student of the Talmud, and I'm a singer-songwriter, a teacher, a father, procrastinator, and many other things. Seven, eight years ago, I was a singer-songwriter first, a burgeoning balchuva, making my way and understanding spiritual growth, but also very, very focused on a career in music. And 14 years ago, <laughs> Camden Town hipster slash reprobate. I think it's probably the best way to put it. I think that's, that's me in summation. So you've been on a journey and we'd like to hear more. So first of all, a couple of the terms that you just mentioned, I would be familiar with them, but I think most of our listeners won't be. So can you tell us, you said you're studying Talmud. What is that? So the Talmud is the oral tradition of the Torah, the exeges and 2,000-year-old conversation that's been happening amongst the Jewish people since uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and before to try and explain, expound, understand in depth, you know, what the Torah is trying to teach us as a people. The other term I used was a bal right? So a bal means a master of repentance, which is a terrible Anglo, um, you know, <laughs> translation of what a bal is. Retshuva, as a concept, means to return. And a bal is somebody who has ownership of something. 
So a Baal Tshuva is somebody who's trying to own the return of their connection to a more meaningful relationship with God. So that's how I'd probably define those two expressions. So you made a decision to return. Where were you that you had to return to somewhere? (laughs) I was a long way away. You know, there's a term which they use in the sort of uh, Jewish outreach movement called kiruv, um, which I don't like that expression. It implies getting close to something, which implies that a person was always implicitly far, which I don't think is true. You know, our sages tell us that the furthest distance you can be from another person on a globe is to just have your back turned to them. When you have your back turned to somebody, you have the whole radius of the globe between you, essentially. To see their face again, you'd have to transverse the entire world, where in truth, all you really have to do is turn around. You just have to turn around. So I think for me, I've been in that process of turning around for (laughs) for a long time. And, you know, it's increments. You're slowly turning around and turning back. It's a bit of a dance. But, uh, yeah, where was I? 14 years ago, I was in a very, very different place, you know, making my way in the in the UK music scene, leading a fairly, I mean, hedonistic lifestyle. Doesn't quite do it justice. (laughs) I was living a life of excess, um, having a lot of fun, but no meaning. No meaning and quite a lot of underlying unhappiness slash depression as well. But, you know, I'm not saying that religiosity is the solution to that. But um, we generally, when we're in in a low place, we want to search for meaning, we want to search for connection and depth. I mean, if we don't have that search, then I think it's a bit of a slippery slope. And you can see me now, I'm dying desperate to ask you lots of follow-up questions because if anyone Googles your name, the results that come up are fascinating (laughs) from, as you said, being a a man of faith, a, a teacher, a student of Judaism to a person that had a very close relationship with Amy Winehouse and Adele. So it feels so unique, your, yourself. So can you help us understand? that a bit more do you still contain different versions of yourself did you have to let go of part of you you know personalities we spend a long time building them and to just delete them (laughs) parts of our our nature our character is just so destructive and not the ideal a lot of people when they're focused on growth or change they so to speak throw the baby out with the bathwater, and you can't do that <laughs> because your personality is through your personality your triggers and your life experiences are you know the sum total of everything you've gone through and you can't just switch that off so all those bits of me that were there you know 14 15 years ago they're still very much a part of me i just hope i have more of an understanding and more of a grasp of uh, what those things are and a bit more self-control Very recently, there was an article, many articles about you recently, Mm -hmm. actually, but you spoke about decisions that you had to make when you got to know the other Alex or not the other Alex, but the, you know, the greater version of yourself. And one of the ideas that I personally am truly inspired by, I guess is Jewish or Israeli culture is the idea of the narrow bridge. In Hebrew, you you say Gesher Tsar Me'od for anyone Mm -hmm. that knows a little bit Hebrew or maybe went once or twice to synagogue. There's a beautiful song that goes, the whole world is a very narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge. And the main thing is to have no fear, to have no fear at all. And this song is actually very connected to Hasidut, as you mentioned before. And it's acknowledging or even accepting the fact that we will deal with fear 
in our lives. And actually, the Jewish nation story is about overcoming fear and always going forward. Pausing or taking a minute, it's almost not an option in, in traditional Jewish Sometimes, life. Sometimes, yes. You just have to go for it. <laughs> go for it. So tell us about one or two of the bridges that you faced in the last maybe 10 years. Um, was it sure. a scary bridge? How did you decide to cross it? What was the crossing like? So I'm quite an anxious person by nature. Uh, you might be able to hear in my music, but uh, anxiety is something I have definitely struggled with throughout my life. So it sort of totally intensifies and compounds any fear that I might have. So I've been faced with a lot of big decisions in my life, you know, big choices to make. Probably the most notable and most well-known is my experiences with the UK music industry, you know, 10 years ago or so, and they gave me a choice to to either go on tour with a certain young lady or to do a show for the BBC. And, you know, I had to repeatedly say, no, it's on Friday night, which is, you know, obviously for Jewish people is the Sabbath. And uh, there are lots of prohibitions on that day. It's a beautiful thing, the Sabbath, but uh, there are things you cannot do, like work, for instance. And the hardest choice I had at that stage, that early stage, was to choose Shabbos, the Sabbath, Shabbat, over taking certain career opportunities. Um, it was very hard. I lost a record deal because of it. You know, became an unsigned artist very quickly with absolutely no investment behind me, a logistical nightmare and a creative nightmare when you can't pay for studio or whatever. Um, so that was probably the most difficult decision that I've had in terms of my personal growth. But reassuringly for me, it, it wasn't much of a decision. Like I knew what was the right thing to do. And when you know what the right thing to do is, it makes it a lot sweeter, a lot sweeter. Also, I had great mentors around me and friends around me who were pushing me saying, listen, you're going to be all right. Have faith and do the right thing. You know, doing the right thing is, you know, we talk about the power of free choice. And I had a great man once say that the power of free choice isn't between good and bad. It's the choice between right and convenient. That's what Bechira really is. Like, what's the right thing to do and what's the convenient thing to do? Because um, usually the convenient thing to do is a lot easier, a lot simpler. But there's a reason why it's, you know, convenient. So sometimes you have to make the hard choice and you have to live with it. And sometimes you won't have clarity. In some cases, years. In my case, it was about six months before I really saw the fruit of that decision come good. And the fruit of that decision was that... I left the music industry, went to yeshiva, and while I was in yeshiva, which is the place where we study Talmud and Jewish texts, while I was in yeshiva, my song Too Close obviously became a top 10 hit all over the world and sold millions of copies. So <laughs> those difficult decisions, sometimes we don't even see the results in this lifetime of those decisions, but uh, nevertheless, we still have to take them for the long-term good. I needed to hear you saying this today, where I am in my own journey. I know I'm in London now not too far from your in-laws and, and you're in Yerushalayim and in, in Holy Jerusalem, but I really am feeling, you know, quite emotional listening to you because you're sharing your very personal experience, Alex, when you had to do what, not what's convenient, but what's right. And often that's the hardest bridge to cross. And I'm sure that many people that are listening to us, they are also now facing these decisions as we do in life. And as you said, sometimes we don't understand or don't see the return, not even in this lifetime. So it, there's a lot of faith in ourselves and something that is much bigger than ourselves. And, you know, Alex, one of the things that I share in the book is how fascinating it is to learn that the Jewish wisdom is universal. Uh, it's sure. about self-growth it's about understanding yourself better. It's about doing something meaningful. I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm trying to do the best I can. 
most of the time, most of the time, you know, still a human being and still uh, definitely not infallible in any sense of the words and quite delightfully flawed in many ways. I'm with you on the journey and similar to you, I've suffered and still very familiar with anxiety. And I think one of uh, the reasons that helped me connect to Jewish wisdom is actually becoming a mother and seeing that the very anxious version of Michal plus being a mother, that combination wasn't working. Uh, mm. when I became a mother uh, nearly 16 years ago. And I want to talk about parenting because you are a father. And when you introduced yourself, being a father was definitely one of the things mm -hmm. you mentioned. So tell me, what is it like for your children to have a father? And this is, of course, using my you know language, half musician, used to hang out in Camden Town with celebrities, and then a Hasidic teacher, an orthodox father, raising them in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. What, what kind of father are you? Oh my goodness me. I hope they say a kind one. I think that'd be, that's what I like them to say is a kind father, because I know that's something that it's very easy to lean on the side of being stern and, and serious. Yeah, I hope a, a kind, cuddly, nice father is what I hope. You know, I have a great dad, a really good paradigm and role model for being a father. Very kind, very tolerant, very patient which all things I think I need to work on. Um, and I hope, you know, now um, little kids are quite fickle. And, um, you know, my oldest is eight and my youngest is three and I have a, a six-year-old in the middle. And I think they would say different things on different days. <laughs> you know, they say different things on different days. And can you help us, Alex, educate us? Because you're a teacher as well as all other things. What does it mean to be a parent in Judaism? Well, what is that role wow. all about? I know it's a big question, wow. but help us understand. It's a big, what does it mean to be a father or a parent? Um, you're a shepherd. You're a gardener. I think those two paradigms are very important. You know, you have to keep these little sheep from uh, stepping into harm's way. And like a gardener has to make sure that the trees and the plants are growing in a proper way, growing straight and, you know, making sure that they produce some beautiful fruit, whatever that fruit will be. That's what it is to be a parent, to nurture and support. You know, something I learned from my own parents, which is something I've taken away from my father specifically, is whatever your aspirations are for your child, they probably will change um, when you realize that we can't project our lives onto our children. We can show them a paradigm and a, a life that's the ideal to live, in your opinion, but um, we really have very little choice in what decisions they make in life. You know, that's really got to be up to them. But giving them the tools to be able to make those decisions and support them, whatever those decisions are, I think that's what a parent has to be. Other than obviously a nose wiper and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and a bath giver and a food feeder. But all those things aside, you know, you've got to just support them and give them the tools to make those decisions in life. And that's beautiful. And I want to kind of go one level maybe deeper because, as you said, being a shepherd, which I guess is also kind of an inspiration that we get from Moses and how he looked after the Jewish yeah, people, the Israelites. In, in Jewish thought, I mean, all our greats were shepherds. King David, the Midrashic commentaries on the Tanakh, on the Bible, tell us that, you know, he was a shepherd. And one of the signs that God saw in him was that he was very, very nurturing of the little sheep. He would make sure every sheep got its fair portion of food. That personality trait is something that is seen throughout Jewish literature. Yosef was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Isaac and Abraham, they were all shepherds. It's a, a thing <laughs> for, for a Jew to be. I love that. And Alex, you, of course, spend your time with Jewish community in, in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. But, you know, I'm assuming that 
wearing your professional hat, you know, many people that you work with are non-Jewish people or maybe not people of faith or people that, you know, are not familiar with Judaism. So can you share with us maybe one or two ideas in Jewish wisdom that you find so universal mm. and that help you connect with people, whoever they are, whatever they believe in? Sure. I mean, the golden rule, which is found across all cultures of to love your fellow as you love yourself, I think is probably the most important ideal. We are empathic beings. And from the time, you know, we're like two years old and hopefully the rest of our life, unless we have a serious mental deficiency, what guides us in our, in our life is empathy. How we relate to other people by relating to ourselves to say, you know what, like, how would I feel in that situation? is, I think, the biggest universal principle that Judaism gave to the world to love your fellows yourself. I am by nature a liberal person. You know, people hear like an orthodox person, you know, student of the Talmud, and they assume I'm some right-wing, <laughs> super conservative person. And, you know, I have my moments, like everybody does. But I think by nature, I'm very liberal in my approach to other people and in terms of tolerance and in terms of understanding what other people are feeling and going through. And for me, that is what is to love your fellows yourself, to understand that even though a person may be completely different to you, their feelings and their emotions and what is harmful to them is the same. It's the same to come down on somebody heavily or to come down on somebody or to do something that would potentially harm another person, God forbid, I think is antithetical to Jewish thought. And to have a level of love and tolerance for other people is pretty important. Um, I think that's an ideal that I hope I can give over to other people. Funnily enough, you know, when a, a Jewish child starts learning the Talmud, when he starts learning the Mishnah, the first sections of the oral law that are traditionally learnt are the laws that deal with damages. You know, if you dig a hole next to someone's wall and it falls down, like who's liable to pay? If you find lost property, do you own it? Do you have ownership of somebody else? Do you have to return it to another person? All these rules, which seem very mundane and a bit sort of, you know, legal and dry, and then someone put it to me one day, they said, you know what, you know why we learn these sections first? Because loving your fellows yourself, understanding that someone can be harmful to another person because of your actions. That is so intrinsic to Judaism that if a person doesn't have that relationship with his fellow man, protecting the rights, protecting the property, protecting the ownership of other people, if you don't have that, then you don't have a meaningful relationship with God. You know, that's what we're supposed to have is to respect other people's personal space, personal possessions and personal thoughts and feelings as if they were your own. That is the very paradigm of, you know, Jewish thought, philosophy, religiosity. First and foremost, to love your fellow of yourself as yourself and to do nothing that would be harmful to them. And that is a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard because we are, although we're empathic, we're also selfish and self-motivated and, you know, self-driven. You know, that's part of what it is to be a human being. We have to aspire to things and be enthusiastic for the things that we want. And that often can come at the cost of other people. That's human nature. And to rise above that and to, you know, rein that in is challenging. Tell us about this Next phase, you know, what is the bridge that you're facing? Because what's ahead of you now, Alex? What's ahead of you now? Wow. The very narrow bridge. <laughs> so what is the narrow bridge right now? Um, right now is all about finishing an EP that I've been working on for the last uh, year and a half or so. And then hopefully, you know, the current world situation, depending, is going on tour again. As a musician, I love touring. I love playing live. That's really 
where I get the most validation and I feel that that level of like synergy within myself. If I'm on a stage performing and playing music, you know, I love it. It's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. And I really feel like I'm actually fulfilling part of my purpose in this world when I'm doing that. So that's what I'd hope to be doing by this time next year. And that's where I hope I am is touring and getting more people to hear my music and to make something really artistically beautiful and emotionally meaningful. So in the morning, you wake up, you dive in, you pray, you teach, yeah. and then you play, and then you give your kids a bath? <laughs> pretty much. My days, I have a pretty crazy schedule. So my, my schedule is I wake up, I get my kids fed and packed off to school. That's usually my priority. Then I go and pray and I go and study. I go and learn for a few hours, usually until around midday. And then I go and write music. <laughs> That's what I do. I go sit and I try and noodle away with a guitar or take care of the general admin of life that builds up. You know, I wish I had more time. If, if we had 26 hours in a day, then I'd be able to do more, but I've only got 24, so I'll have to deal with those. Um, yeah, come home after the studio, go to Mincha, the afternoon prayers, the, the evening prayers. And then usually in the evenings, I'm teaching again or studying with other people or going to a class. So yeah, pretty full schedule. When I go on tour, that will change inevitably. Oh, I can so relate to that. And as you know, uh, you know, one of the questions that we ask all of our guests is what would you do if you weren't afraid. Now, I have a feeling that you overcame fear many times, but is there anything now that you are afraid of that is ahead of you? You know, on Hanukkah, I had an incident where in, in Yerushalayim, we put our Hanukkiyot, our menorahs, we put them outside a house. In the rest of the world, we put them inside the house. And I live in a part of Jerusalem, which is beautiful, but it's uh, <laughs> there's a few rough characters in my neighborhood. And while chopping down a tree, they knocked my menorah off the wall. And it smashed. And the guy started shouting and screaming, you know, whatever. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You put it there. And the biggest thing I was scared of in that situation was myself. <laughs> you know, the thing that I, I really was like, I'm like, just don't react. Don't react. Like, uh, don't, uh, you know, that's the, the, my biggest fear is that our son, I have a little bit of South London thug in me. And uh, sometimes I get a little bit scared of him. I'm like, you know what? You can just stay there and um, not react. So what I would like to do is to have true self-mastery and you know, have real equanimity, I think is the word in English, which is a word that I never used before in my life until I understood this idea, just to be able to accept things that I have to accept and change the things that I can and just have real self-control. You know, that's what I would really, really, really like is to just have total ownership of my emotional reactions. That is so beautiful. I'm even imagining the scene, as you said, in Hanukkah, which is one of the beautiful Jewish holidays. It's all about light and miracles. So you put the Hanukkiah, which is the object where you light the candles outside and it got smashed. But what you chose to do is instead of kind of being angry with the person that caused this, is actually look inside and find that light inside of yourself, which is being, you know, positive. I was, I was still pretty angry. I was still pretty angry, Michal, yeah. But, I tried, <laughs> I tried but you're to, channeling uh, it. You're working exactly. on it. Exactly. And, and being aware of it. You know, part of self-mastery in general is to just be aware that you have a feeling and pressing emotions is never a good idea because it's just going to come out <laughs> somewhere down the way later. But to sublimate the emotion and to feel the emotion and to be present with it. So I think to be aware of one's thoughts and feelings and to acknowledge them and to validate them is really, uh, really important. That's really shining through the conversation that we're having today is like this self-awareness, right? And owning, yeah. owning yourself, owning your thoughts, your feelings, 
and doing something about it. And speaking of thoughts and feelings, one of the things that I'm fascinated about your journey is how you moved from different places, physical places, and also internal places. So Alex, where do you feel you belong? Ooh. Where is that place when you're like, I belong here? I haven't, you know, I haven't found it yet, Michal. I haven't found it yet. I'm, uh, I'm still looking. <laughs> In terms of physical space, it can be anywhere. As long as, you know, uh, physically a person is comfortable and in a healthy place that's fine you know and I'd, I'd love to be in that area of comfort um, that's really really important but uh where am I supposed to end up you know I still feel even though I live in the center of Jerusalem I still sometimes feel that I'm very much uh in exile to some extent so I don't know I don't know where I'm going to be most you know at my best I'm still looking for that place um, whether it's a spiritual place whether it's a physical place we all get there I hope you all get there I love it. I love it. And Alex, I feel like your vulnerability today really allows myself and our listeners to really normalize these things that we're feeling when we're not sure where we belong and we are still work in progress and we're not there yet. But as you said today, you're doing your best to arrive there or to be on the journey. And one of the beautiful sayings in, again, one of the holy books that I'm sure you're very fond of, which is called the Tanya, is about the longer, shorter way. So sure. I'd love to hear from you. What does that mean for you, the longer, uh, shorter way? So the story in the Talmud actually comes from a, a story in the Talmud, which was one of the great sages was walking to a town. A little bit of a, a prelude to this. He was asked by his students if he was ever outfoxed in an argument by anybody. And he said, yes, once by a child. And the child said to him, you know, he was walking down the road trying to get to a certain destination. And he said to this child, what's the way to this village? And the child said to him, well, you can take the long, short way or the short, long way. <laughs> he was like, what do you mean the long, short way or the short, long way? And he said, well, there's a way which in distance is much closer. It's much closer. But if you go that way, there's going to be pitfalls. There's going to be, you know, snakes and scorpions and bears. And you'll be there faster. But the journey is going to be full of more things that could cause you harm. Okay. And then there's another way, which is the long, short way which is definitely longer in distance. It's going to take you a long, long time to travel that route. But while you're on that route, there's a lot less chance that harm is going to be caused to you. So the Tanya is this way. You know, Hasidic thought is the way that's going to take you a lot more time. You know, you can have a spiritual high and you can have a quick fix emotionally. And it'll be great. You'll have a great time, you know, getting that sort of out of the box, wonderful experience, whatever you'll do in life. But it's a short term fix. It's a sticking plaster that will give you a, you know, a nice kick. I think, you know, Karl Marx, when he talks about religion being the opiate of the people, that's exactly what he's talking about. That you can have this beautiful quick fix of emotional like validation. And yeah, this is fantastic, but it doesn't have any meaning and it doesn't have any goal. Whereas the long short way is the way that's going to take you a lot more time. And it's going to take you a lot more hard work, but you're going to get to the destination and you're going to be a much better person for it. But it takes time. It takes being realistic with oneself. And, you know, I, I didn't get this point for years. And you said, you know, I had a vulnerability. And I've tried to own that in some way because I was very, very detached from that vulnerability and self-acceptance for a long time. And I was very much looking for that quick spiritual high. I was flying off to go to Kivrit Adikim, you know, graves of holy rabbis and going to these wonderful, wonderful out-of-the-box Jewish experiences. But it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't uh, change anything within the, you know, it can inspire you short term, but it's not going to change anything long term. Whereas the other way of being realistic with oneself and accepting oneself for who they really are, 
you know, saying this is who I am, and but this is what I want to change, and this is what I want to be. That is not a overnight trip. <laughs> that is a uh, a long haul backpacking adventure on the Trans Siberian Railway um, over the Himalayas and across the Great Wall of China. You know, that's what that journey is. It's a schlep, but it's a meaningful schlep. You know, it's a meaningful journey. I love it, and just that sense of meaning and search for meaning is something that comes across so strongly from you. So thank you for inspiring me and inspiring our thank listeners. Alex, todaraba. Thank you so much for opening up, for giving us the time. I know how crazy busy you are. And thank you really from my heart, sending you love. Oh, wow, Alex. And I thought I knew your story, but I actually know and understand you so much better now. And really, Alex, well done. Well done, you for following your path and listening to your soul. Thank you so much for sharing those moments, those choices, the difficulty, the bravery that it required. And I'm kind of reflecting, questioning, wondering, what is it like now to be back, back in a big way to the music industry? I, I saw that you were about to play in, in Camden Town, so kind of go back to where it all started with Amy Winehouse and others. You're coming back, but you're a different version of yourself. The 15 or 20 years in between, those are big, meaningful years. I sometimes have this experience when I go back to my motherland, uh, to Israel, and I visit my parents and my family, and I, I haven't been living there for many, many years, but it's where I started. But I'm not the same person. Of course not. So one reflection for me is how do we return to the places that our journey started but allow ourselves to come back with a refreshed, more updated versions of who we choose to be? Another reflection point I have is trust in yourself. I can only imagine how hard it was for Alex to say no to touring with Adele, to say no to the lifestyle and the connections and the reality of Camden Town 15 years ago. And that trust that even though he had no idea how it was going to turn out for himself, choosing a religious lifestyle and moving to Jerusalem from London, I want to assume that Alex trusted himself. I know he trusted God because he's a man, a person of faith, but... I wonder if he really also deep, deep inside trusted himself. And I can't not wonder about the relationship that he mentioned with his father and that close trust, confidence that he had. And I wonder as a parent, how can I inject that sense of inner trust within my children so when they need to make decisions and they consider their choice as well, that eventually, finally, just about making the decision They can look inside and say, I can do this. I see it as part of my job as a mother to build that internal confidence inside of them. So a lot of reflection for me, and I'm sure for listeners, for you as well, after hearing Alex Clare today. As you know, I love coaching questions. I love taking action. And uh, who better than Alex Clare to role model taking action and owning your life? A coaching question that I would like to share with you today is around bridges, crossing narrow bridges. We spoke about it and we will continue using this image of a bridge 
And in life, we are standing in front of the bridge wondering, where do we belong, on this side or the other? Does this bridge feel mine? Does it feel like a safe bridge? Who can help me cross the bridge? And those are the thoughts that I'd like to leave you with today. What is a bridge that you're facing? A professional bridge, a career change, a, a learning something new within your area of work and profession, or a personal bridge, starting to date again after a breakup or, or actually separating from the person that's not the right person for you. How are you feeling as you stand in front of the bridge? Who can help you take the first step? And when you get to the other side of the bridge, is that going to be your place? Is that where you're going to belong? Because if it is, start finding a way to take that step by step on your very personal narrow bridge. Thank you for listening to us today on What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? My name is Michal Oshman, and today's guest was Alex Clare, singer and songwriter, and so, so much more. If you'd like to listen to Alex's songs, watch his videos, you can follow him everywhere on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, his Instagram, TikTok. Go to his concerts. Enjoy his spiritual music that will connect to your soul. Thank you, Alex, again. Thank you so much for all the incredible people that make this podcast happen. Thank you to our executive producer, Alex Hollins, Carrie Luter, our head of production, Leo Schick, our assistant producer, and Lucy Ditchmont, who is producing this show for Storyglass. Thank you so much. If you'd like to find out more about the concepts that we speak about on our podcast, about your soul, about how to find meaning, about replacing fear with purpose, you are welcome to purchase my book or download What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid by Michal Oshman. That's me. And I'd love to get your feedback on our podcast. So please do share, review, give me feedback so we can grow and improve 